this um, infamous um, milkshake video? People heard about the milkshake video controversy? Yeah,
as they see fit. Now, Sextus is naturally drinking a glass of water. And Lenin being a bit of a Puritan said, well, yes, we all need to drink water, but we want to make sure that the water is clean and the water is not polluted and we're not just drinking it off the street. So, nice little bit of argument about milkshakes somehow using that as a kind of simile for sex. I thought, maybe they were thinking about Well, they probably weren't actually thinking Russian revolutionary debates, but that'd be it. No? No, I thought that, that was coming out there. Okay, well, I'm not going to start again since it is four past one. Um, obviously, of course, the weekly discussion questions. Um, good news is I've sort of marked and entered the results for your ones for last week. Um, bad news is I left them on the kitchen table this morning, so I'll go hand them back um, next week. And that's the cap is sort of set out and or something like that, which is always possible. Good. My numbers are going to be I, yeah, just like saying that um, I'll be handing back the discussion questions <coughs> next week because I left them at home this morning. Um, so, what we're looking at today is we're sort of moving across to the second half of the unit. And this is really focusing on political parties. So, I'll hand out the questions for this week. Um, very much sort of, there we are, which are very much focused on the readings for this week. Somebody said to me, I can't remember which class it was, that the readings last week weren't closely linked enough to, that the questions last week weren't closely linked enough to the readings. I can't remember if it was here or if it was at Durwood, but whatever the case, the ones for this week are pretty closely linked to the readings. So, as I say, so, yeah, first half of the unit is about Social movements, second half of the unit is about political parties. And how I sort of run the second half of the unit is there's this sort of first lecture, which is looking at what is a political party, the idea of political parties, the, the tools you might use to understand them. And I'll be introducing some concepts for thinking about the nature of party politics. So it's a fairly sort of definitional and theoretical week this week. Then I look at liberalism, conservatism and socialism um, and how those ideologies could impact on the tasks of party organisation. If you're coming from a conservative position, how would you feel about a political party? What sort of political party would you try to set up? What sort of dilemmas would you face? So, if you remember, I think, um, Visions and Values Unit, I suppose, in a sense, that's thinking a bit about political strategies. You know, I've got the five aspects of an ideology. One of them is a political strategy, and a political party is a political strategy. So I look at that. And then the last two topics, one of them I have on the connection between parties and social movements, uh, because I think those two things are closely connected, but I'll particularly focus on attempts to sort of transform social movements into political parties and how successful that is, how unsuccessful that is. And in the last week, I'll focus on some issues about what happens if parties disappear. You know, what could be the consequence of the decline of political parties? Could that have real bad consequences? So that's the sort of outline structure for the um, rest of the topic. Um, 
Don't go, obviously when it comes to political parties, I mean, we very much take them for granted. And in Australia, you know, we've had a remarkable stability of the political party system for a very long time. So, what are the two major political party blocks in Australia at the moment? Major Yeah, major political. Um, uh, people might be offended you haven't mentioned the National Party, but the National Party is um, interestingly persistent, but it is very much, you know, tied on to the Liberal Party. Um, have any new political forces emerged in Australia over the last 30 years or so that have tried to challenge um, the two major party blocks? The Greens. Yeah, the Greens, obviously. Very much a party emerging out of the social movement. Um, any other political forces that have emerged that try to do The Democrats, yes.
but for various reasons, if you looked at the international spectrum of conservative parties, you would probably put the German Christian Democrats as being very much on the left end of that spectrum, and American Republicans probably very much on the right end, end of that spectrum. Um, Conservative, of course, is stepping down, and elections are going to be held in Germany fairly soon, and it'll, it'll be interesting to see what emerges replacing her. Um, so if she's sitting the Christian Democrats, do you know what the major opposition party in Germany traditionally has been? The party of the left in German politics. Social Democrats and the um, Christian Democrats. Um, but of course, German politics is different in some ways. Um, so obviously, Merkel's the Prime Minister at the moment. Um, I'm dropping this. Apologies, off campus students. For that, yes. I'll attach it more firmly so I won't do any more damage to your hearing. Um, so Merkel's the leader of German Prime Minister, um, leader of the Christian Democrats. She's in coalition with another political party, however. Anybody know what something which seems very unusual in the Australian case about the government that she le leads? Christian Democrats are actually in coalition with the Social Democrats. So this would be like having a federal government with Scott Morrison as Prime Minister and um, Anthony Albo, Elbo Albanese as um, Deputy Prime Minister, which you would not see happen in Australia, but it's actually fairly common in Germany because the sort of Social Democrats and Christian Democrats are fair, reasonably close ideologically. It's not unusual for them to form coalition governments. So, we're coming up to the elections, and the interesting thing about this situation is that you know, the Greens are actually polling ahead of the Social Democrats, and they have been polling more votes than the Social Democrats have been for some years, probably because the Social Democrats thought, well, if we go into coalition government with Angela Merkel, at least we get some influence on politics. But being in coalition government with the Conservatives has really reduced their brand and their distinctiveness, and their vote has been slumping quite heavily for a long period. So you have this very unusual situation in Germany whereby which it looks as though potentially the kind of political system might be upended. You know, because if the current polls go as they are, the Greens would be would outpoll the Social Democrats, and the Greens would potentially form 
government in Germany, which would be sort of the first national green led government. Um, but of course, although the Greens have moved out of the social movement, they now they now very much define themselves as a centre left party. Um, but they had a convention apparently last week to choose their candidate for chancellor, and it was sort of a 97% vote for the candidate who just sort of been switched up behind the scenes. So the original image of the Greens as this kind of radical democratic participatory party has sort of disappeared down the track, and they've adopted a younger female candidate who's you know already been you know likened to being the German equivalent of Jacinta Ardern. Um, so that's a rare example, perhaps, you know, that sometimes a political system, a party system, can change. You know, and if the Greens did replace the Social Democrats as the major party of the left, then that would be um, a significant change in a party system. And the Greens in Australia, you know, for a long time have said, well, we're going to replace the Labour Party, but they've never come near doing so. Whereas in Germany, potentially the Greens might end up um, doing that. Um, it'll be interesting to see that. I mean, the Greens tend to lose votes in election campaigns. People tend to, you know, go back to their traditional political allegiances. But maybe that won't happen. So that would be a rare case of a kind of party system changing. So when you think about a political party, I suppose, <coughs> yeah, it's obviously but it's not something which is 
best abiding by Labour Party constitution, but a part of how the Labour Party operates that isn't defined in the party rules, but which is still very important. So you've got that kind of union connection, which establishes a kind of linking back to a social movement. And I mean, the union thing actually in the Labour Party is interesting because on one hand, it isn't a party constitution. Now, there are certain unions that are affiliated with the Labour Party, have been for a long time. But there are also these close kind of informal connections. So, for example, um, the nurses' union has never been affiliated to the Labor Party, and it's always sort of steered clear of affiliating to the Labor Party. But nurses' union officials have often become Labor MPs because they're a major trade union. They're important in the broader union movement. So, the kind of informal assumption often is they want to pursue a parliamentary career, they have it in the form of the Labor Party. So parties are both these kind of formal structures, but also informal ones. And of course, the other case, the Labor Party is a factional system. Okay. It's not written in the constitution of the Labor Party anymore, anywhere. But factional systems, which are sort of parties within parties, are important in terms of understanding that. So, in a sense, what I'm getting at is that when you look at a political party, it's a lot more than just an institution. It will be linking back to society, potentially to relations to a social movement, to other organisations in society. It will also be interacting with other political parties, forming a party system. And it will have both sort of a formal structure and an informal one as well. And the formal structure can often be fairly nominal in terms of how a political party operates. So one example of that actually would be that um, you have the Labour Party federally. Um, does anybody know how the leader of the federal Labour Party is chosen? Who actually chooses on paper the leader of the Federal Labor Party. They do choose the leader of the party, but it was changed some years ago. Does anybody know how it was changed some years ago? I mean, there's a reason probably why people haven't heard of this, so it doesn't come to mind. Well, some years ago, the rules of the party were changed that the leader was selected by a 50-50 vote. Half of that vote came from Labor MPs and half of that vote came from party branch members. Um, so on paper, that looks like a pretty radical change in how a Labor Party operates. So actually opening up participation to branch members there aren't very many of them these days. There are still some tens of thousands scattered around Australia. 
Um, they are very concentrated in individual suburbs. Um, I saw something actually in the green the other day saying that it worked out, I think, what was the five percent of the membership of the Greens across Australia lived in one suburb. Anybody know what the suburb is? Five percent of the membership actually lives in just one Australian suburb. Brunswick, yeah, Brunswick. <laughs> um, actually, the Labor Party wasn't much better. Um, it'd be split between the sort of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy, and a few sort of key western suburbs set in Sydney and Melbourne, and not much suburbs elsewhere. But what's happened in the case of the Labor Party is that. Um, when Shorten stood down after losing the unlosable election to Scott Morrison, um, Anthony Albanese nominated to replace him, and nobody else from the parliamentary party stood. So Anthony Albanese was chosen as leader of the Labor Party unopposed. So basically, Labor MPs were able to avoid having a ballot that involved rank and file members. So you could have this sort of formal change in the structure of the Labor Party, which on paper looks quite revolutionary, but which in practice hasn't meant anything at all and probably won't mean anything at all potentially into the future for some time. So I suppose there's sort of things to think about political parties. Um, it's really, I'm trying to get you to think, well, they're more complex than you might think. Now, it might seem obvious what a political party is, but in practice, they're part of a broader system and they're more complex to work out how they operate if you actually sort of dig down and look at them. So, the readings this week, you know, very much touch on these basic issues about political parties, but they also talk about ways of understanding how parties compete with each other. And they sort of introduce some concepts that I will sort of use in the analysis of different types of political parties and the rest of the unit. So, I'll get started on the lecture component now and then we'll come back to the workbook questions. But what I'm talking about will definitely be touching on the workbook question, the discussion questions.
the focus of this week's mnemonic, um, and there will be a couple of cheesy election videos as well, so stay can hang out for those, um, is to think about you know, political parties as an institution, how they might operate in terms of the system. So I'll both be talking about you know, how you might define a political party, what a political party is, and so on. And I'll talk then about some issues about how you might understand the relationship between voters and political parties. Because you know, in a democracy, political parties have to win elections. If they can't secure a certain level of popular support, they tend to fade away um, or sort of go into deep freeze, like One Nation, and then sort of Pauline Hanson is reactivated and emerged. Um, they need to maintain some degree of support. So that's an important part of political parties. And there are ways of thinking about how they mobilise support, which I'll talk upon, ideas of sort of racial and violent politics, which I think is a really useful concept. And I'll conclude by saying a bit about different types of parties. So sort of laying the foundation for what the second um, part of the unit is about. So what role are political parties supposed to play in a political system? Um, well, there's a big literature on this. Um, I'm sort of uh, lifting this sort of description here from some work done by um, Zim Akoya, uh, of course, who does the American Politics Unit. He's very much the sort of analytical study of political parties person expert. But you know, political parties, well, they can represent voter preferences. You know, people want the government to do something. How do they do that? Potentially, political parties represent their preferences. They can recruit political leadership. You know, how good is Scott Morrison? How did he get to be prime minister? How did he you know, progress from being a minor tourism industry bureaucrat to, to the father of the nation? Um, doing public exercise routines and all these inspirational things he does. They should formulate policy. Now, what should the government be doing? Political parties, on one definition, should be playing an important role in doing that. They should represent interests. Now, if you think about a pluralist democracy, there are all sorts of different interest groups. Political parties should be playing a role in terms of representing that. And you know, there's that broader question as well, perhaps, of you know, in incorporating citizens. You know, how do people develop a sense of connection with their government? You know, how do they come to trust their government, to enable government to function? Parties should play a role in enabling people to feel that they have a voice in the political system. And of course, as part of that, now, they should be a kind of force for maintaining accountability. You know, so we have a system of government opposition. We have a system whereby which governments supposedly are accountable to the people. 
So these are sort of functions that scholars have, you know, traditionally tended to say <coughs> parties are responsible for doing. Now, of course, in practice, maybe they don't do this. You know, maybe they're stopped doing this altogether, and maybe perhaps you need to think, well, are there alternative ways of doing this? Um, For example, in Australia, generally legislation comes from political parties putting stuff through Parliament. Are there any other ways, perhaps, in which you could have legislation being approved? Having laws being agreed to. Are there ways of doing that potentially that might not involve political parties in the Parliament? So referendums, I mean, we don't have them much at all in Australia, but for example, we had the same-sex marriage herbicide referendum, which was actually a response to a kind of crisis in the party system. In a way, the party system was failing perhaps to represent voter preferences and same-sex marriage. Um, Britain, for example, has had referendums on whether or not to join the EU or not, which have been very disruptive of the British party system. So some of these functions maybe could be done by something else. And I, I, and, I and Zim actually are working on an article where we're looking at 19th century New South Wales where they did not have political parties and saying, well, does 19th century New South Wales show that you don't need political parties to do these things, that you can imagine a political system without parties? I think our conclusion is no, but it sort of works in the context of 19th century New South Wales. And there are political systems in which parties are extremely weak or even non-existent. Um, yeah. In the Australian states, actually, there's one House of Parliament, you know, so think of the different Houses of Parliament in the Australian states. There's one state where one House of Parliament, up until very recently, did not actually have a majority of party members. A majority of the members of this House of Parliament were actually independent. Anybody know what this state is? It's got one House of Parliament, but until fairly recently, a majority of the members didn't actually belong to a political party. representation in the lower house, you know, first Greens party, and the upper house of Tasmania, until I think a couple of years ago, a majority of the members were independent. Um, although actually, if you look at their voting behaviour, they were in two clear blocks. So there were two sort of quasi-parties, there were the left-wing independents and the right-wing independents, and they pretty much voted as a block, but there was no party system. So Tasmania, to a degree, you know, part of its government functions without political parties, fairly effectively for a long period. Um, so, if we're analysing parties, we sort of think about parties in a way as having sort of different aspects. You might think about a party as just being the members of parliament, 
But you also might think of a party as being a kind of base or the electoral support of a party. So, for example, if you think of the Liberal Party in Australia, Malcolm Turnbull. Anybody remember Malcolm Turnbull? Yes, yes. The Manitician. Um, one reason why Malcolm Turnbull was overthrown as Prime Minister was because of a fear that rusted on Conservatives did not like him, that they wouldn't vote for him. You know, and Malcolm, who I think was talking last week about how the base at the Liberal Party, you know, they just listen to Sky News and Sky News tells them what to do and that's why I stopped being Prime Minister. That's important. So, members of Parliament, but also the people who vote for a party are sort of members of a, of a party. In America, they are. In Australia, they're sort of in this kind of in-between stage. But also, as well, the kind of party is organisation. You know, a party has paid-up members in Australia, it has administration, it has the kind of party machine, it has informal structures around that, such as factions and so on. And this sort of party organisation as well can also be divided. You know, because what the administration of a political party wants might not be what the actual membership of the party wants, and the distinction back and forth between them. But today I'm sort of mainly going to be focusing on thinking about a political party in Parliament and thinking about a political party as a group of voters and how they sort of fit together. Now, this is where we sort of come along to sort of the first of the sort of analytical concepts I'm going to introduce this week. Um, why might members of parliament decide it's in their interest to set up a political party? And this is what the reading by um, um, Robert John Aldrich John Aldrich is looking at. Because he's trying to you know, answer this question of well if you had, say, a parliament of independence, you know, if you had a political system where there were not political parties, why might MPs decide to come together and set up a political party? You know, why would they give up their independence, their ability to wheel and deal, and agree to form a political party? And Aldrich's argument, and it's sort of in the reading and the rest of his book. It's very much an argument that comes from this kind of rational choice position. You know, you remember, I think, you know, that we looked at Nan Crow Olson's argument, all that stuff about the free rider problem and so on. And Aldridge is saying, well, why would members of parliament find it within their interests to join a political party? Now, why don't they just go on being independent and his argument is that if parties form, if members of parliament form political alliances, that enables them to strike deals. It enables them to achieve goals. It enables them to achieve substantive objectives. And if you have people in a political party, you know, political parties can impose discipline on their members. Political parties can make deals. Whereas independent members of parliament can't make these deals. Now, it just becomes a matter of individual trust. People can renege on, uh, renege on deals and undermine them. 
So Alder's argument is that to make a parliament work effectively, uh, to actually pass legislation, political parties are necessary. That political parties come into existence uh, to solve these collective action problems and that people benefit by the existence of political parties. Now, it's very much this kind of rational choice approach. Now, people are motivated by self-interest. Why would MPs give up their independence and agree to join political parties and set party discipline? Well, they get something out of it. You know, they get an ability to pass legislation that they want, that they like. This reinforces their position for being elected and so on. So this is sort of Aldridge's argument. Um, which has been quite influential in, you know, in terms of how people think about how political parties operate. Okay. Now, perhaps that gives you a view about why MPs might set up a political party so they can make deals amongst themselves. But why might voters be attracted to a political party? Why might voters find it within their interests to be loyal to a political party. And this is where this idea of party, party identification comes in. The argument is, well, most voters are actually politically disengaged. Yeah. It's not rational to spend your time in micro-examining public policy in detail, um, spend all of your time on Twitter, sort of exchanging insults with people about public policy. Uh, and actually people don't do that on Twitter. I mean, they exchange insults about parties and personalities, but not really about policy. So the theory of partisan identification, which is very important in terms of how you explain voter behaviour, very much argues that people tend to have a kind of identification with a political they mostly tend to vote for this political party. This is a kind of guiding principle of their politics. Now, people are disengaged from politics, an election campaign comes along, they turn up to vote and they think, well, you know, I'm traditionally a Labour supporter, I traditionally vote for the coalition, they vote for them. So in this view, this is a kind of sort of ballast in the political system. You know, rather than the system changing from election to election, you have stability. And if you think about Australia, you have a lot of stability. Uh, there's been Labor and the coalition for a century. New political forces have emerged. The, the system has mostly survived. Australia is a country where there's still reasonably high levels of party identification. So this is this kind of sort of second aspect of a political party. It's both members of parliament coming together in groups, but it's also a kind of loyalty among voters. Um, now, partisan identification is a theory that's sometimes been controversial. Because critics, I think, have tended to say, well, does it really explain anything? If you do a survey of somebody and you say, you know, and you find out that person voted for the Labour Party, say, and 
you find out that, and you ask that person, why do you vote for the Labor Party? And the person says, well, I usually vote for the Labor Party. Does that really explain anything? Some people say it's a kind of tautological theory. Now, of course people vote for different political parties, but just saying they have a kind of identity with each political party doesn't explain it. Now, the early versions of partisan identification theory very much said, well, basically people pick up an allegiance to a political party during their childhood, their early youth, and basically they stick with that. But there's some evidence that partisan identification can change. People, you know, one year might say, well, you know, I'm a strong Labor supporter. Next year they might say, I'm, I'm a weak Labor supporter. Next year they might say, I'm a weak coalition supporter. People move back and forth. Doesn't that, does it actually explain anything about how people vote? You could also say, I think that it's, it's very much a kind of viewpoint that downplays the importance of ideology. Because what you're really saying is, well, there are these political parties, some people vote Labor, some people vote Liberal, some people support Collingwood, some people support St Kilda. It's just an arbitrary preference. It doesn't reflect anything deep or substantive about society and social divisions. And it probably is no coincidence that partisan identification as a way of thinking about politics is a very American idea. And it's really sort of first formalised and developed in the 1950s, which is this kind of consensus in American politics. Uh, middle of the road, consensus, Cold War, everybody uniting against communism. When it's brought across to Australia, it's brought across by people who want to say, well, Australian politics isn't ideological. You know, some people vote Labor, some people vote Liberal. It's really because their parents did. You can't explain it anything more than, than that. So, on one hand, I mean, it, it is a kind of theory that is supported by the evidence, because if you go out and ask people which party do you usually support, you will find out that people usually match that. But does it actually explain why people vote? And you can sort of see evidence of its apparent strength in the Australian case. So this is looking at the 2019 election in Australia. Um, Scott Morrison's miracle. And the post-election survey, you know, asking people, which party do you identify with? Um, and actually, out of Labour and the Coalition, which of those two parties did a better job of winning its sort of core support base, getting party loyalists to actually vote for the party. Which party did better? Yeah. And that is part of the story of why Morrison won. You know, over 90% of people who said, now I, you know, I generally vote Liberal, over 90% of those people voted Liberal. If you look at Labor, only a bit over 80% did. So almost one in five Labor voters or Labor supporters went off in the other direction. And actually Morrison went off to the Liberal Party. Scott Morrison's pretty good. I'm worried about my job in the coal industry, etc. Then went off to the Greens. So the Labor Party in a way sort of found itself suffering erosion 
for both the kind of left and right. Um, it's interesting for the Greens as well. For among people who say regard themselves as being a Green supporter, um, which party did stump them best off to? People who regard themselves as Green as Green supporters. to the Greens but also to the other side. Now, I think I sort of showed this graph last week, but if you look at patterns of partisan identification in Australia, yeah, there's declining loyalty to the major parties. A bigger portion of people who say they don't have an identification. On the other hand, support for the Greens has actually gone to the bit. So the Greens now have a kind of solid base, which the Australian Democrats didn't have. The Australian Democrats were like the Greens in some ways, but the Democrats never had a, a kind of rusted on support base, by and large, um, whereas the Greens do. But you could also see in a way that identification goes up and goes down in ways that you know, can't be explained by people going off. You know, pretty obviously in the 1980s, the Labor Party was pretty popular, Bob Hawke and so on. People tended, some people shifted their identification towards the Labor Party in the 1990s. So partisan identification can change. It's not just set in, set in stone. And if part of partisan identification became completely changeable, then it would be a useless concept. So... Now, this brings us into sort of trying to explain political change, you know, and why the party system might change, which sort of links us back to social movements as well. 
that's an identification theory. You could just say sort of assume pretty much that politics is pretty static. Yeah, politics just rumbles along. Most people are fairly disengaged. Most people, when they have to vote, they decide, well, I've always voted Labor, I'll vote Labor, or something like that. And in that kind of party system, in a way, politics is pretty pragmatic in the middle of the road. You say, you know, the Labor Party says, well, we know about 30% of people are going to vote for us anyway. We need to get those sort of soft people in the middle, vice versa. Not very ideological. Not very big issues driving politics. But what happens if you have new issues introduced? New spatial issues? I'll talk about this concept of spatiality in a moment. If something new lands in politics, some entirely new concept or argument, then people might rethink their voting behaviour. They might think, well, there's this new issue which is really important. That's going to drive my voting behaviour. And my voting behaviour is going to change for fitting with this new issue. So now one example of that would be, um, have people heard of Brexit? What was Brexit? That's a really big thing. And Britain had left the EU. How was it going to leave the EU? Was it going to try to get back into the EU? That was a new issue in British politics. And that really scrambled the party system. It initially it seemed to help the Labour Party, but then it did a lot of damage to the Labour Party because some Labour supporters said, well, we love Brexit so much we're going to vote for um, Boris Johnson because he's going to deliver Brexit. So it can sort of transform the political environment are these new issues. So the stability of the party system depends a lot on the issues that matter to people being fairly well established. Social change, and this is where social movements are really important, is they put new issues onto the agenda. And when this happens, you have a process of um, realignment. The political system changes, it's sort of foundations can shift and you can get the emergence of new political parties and new formations. So, the argument about realignment, and it goes back to the 1950s to an American scholar called Victor Key, he basically said, well, there's sort of three sorts of elections. Usually you find out that in most elections, politics is pretty routine. People turn up, they mostly vote for the party they traditionally vote for. Politics is pretty close. Occasionally, there are what are called deviating elections. And a deviating election is when some big thing happens and people suddenly decide they're going to vote for a different political party. Because of one one-off, big, dramatic reason. Um, what's been the big preoccupation in Australian politics really over the last year in terms of public policy and controversy? The big thing people have been worried about that governments have been reacting to. Big thing, chaos, disruption, shutdowns. Are people completely forgotten it? Australian election, 
you know, a month or so ago. Totally bizarre result. You know, biggest victory for one party ever in Australian history. By far. Because people loved what the West Australian government was doing and how it responded to COVID. So all of these people, obviously, who'd been lifelong Liberal voters and whose grandparents had probably been lifelong Liberal voters, voted Labor, and the Liberal Party just refused to two seats in Parliament. So that was a deviating election. You know, there was this dramatic event of COVID, and this led a huge flock of people to shift towards the Labor Party. But are those people going to stay with the Labor Party? No, probably they will drift back to the Liberal Party. But you might imagine a case maybe in which a new issue comes up and people change their voting behaviour and it stays changed. You know, Brexit. Labour voters in Britain might think, I love Brexit. This once I'm going to vote for Boris Johnson because he's delivered Brexit. And then they might think, well, I like Brexit. Boris Johnson likes Brexit. I like Boris Johnson. Maybe I'm going to become a Conservative. And this has sort of happened with the Labour Party in Britain. Now, the evidence is that, I mean, it's a bit more complex in practice because sometimes this kind of process of realignment can take a few elections. You know, people still feel this kind of loyalty to their traditional party. They might go back to it, but they're being pulled away from it gradually. As well, it's often also about first-time voters and non-voters. So, you know, your parents might still be Labor voters, and you might have voted Labor initially, but you think Brexit is really cool, and you're going to go and vote for Boris Johnson. So that's an example. It's, it's, it's a process that sort of takes time. But this is sort of where social movements, I think, are important, because they can drive this process of identity formation. They can make people think, my identity is different. Now, I am a member of the working class, Oh, therefore I should vote for this new socialist party. I'm a Catholic. I should vote for this Catholic party. You know, I'm Polish. I should vote for this nationalist party. So, you know, the emergence of socialism as political voice, which I'll talk about in a couple of weeks, was part of a process of identity formation. People began to think about their identity and they developed this identity as working class and they defined themselves as socialists. So, how might realignment play out in practice? Um, so this is evidence from Australia at the local level. So this is looking at the relationship between the vote for the Labor Party and the vote for the Greens. So blue is Labor, reddish is Green, in the electorates of Melbourne, which is central Melbourne, and the electorates of Batman, recently renamed Cooper. And Melbourne is inner Melbourne, Brunswick Fitzroy, Cooper is Norcott, Preston, Thornbury, etc. So 20 years or so ago, Which was the bigger party, Labour or the Greens, in these parts of the inner city? Which party had more votes? Yeah, the Labour Party was way ahead, the Greens were pretty tiny. 
But then you see over time a process of the green vote going up and the Labor vote going down. So now some of the support challenge is due to new people moving in and gentrification and so on. But there's also a pattern of people in these areas sort of changing their political allegiance, tending to move from the Labor Party to the Greens. Um, but you, I mean, you can also see the way it can still vary. You know, so in 2019, for example, you know, the Greens absolutely crushed Labor in Melbourne, but in Cooper, because of local problems with the Greens and a strong Labor candidate, the Green vote crashed and uh, the Labor Party was able to hold on. So this is an example of this kind of process of realignment. And it took time. You know, election to election, it's not much change, but pretty clearly you can see a pattern whereby which the Greens have emerged as the major political force and the Labor Party has declined. Um, now, if you did a Labor Liberal now, if you looked at Ballarat and Bendigo, you might see something a bit like that as well. Um, it's an example of a kind of local realignment. So, why might realignment happen? A lot of it can also be linked to what goes on in the political system as a whole. And a couple of concepts I think that have, people have used a lot in terms of thinking about politics is to think about the past. Because political systems are very much characterised by kind of past agendas. You know? The same thing keeps on happening. You know, people tend to vote Labour, their kids tend to vote Labour, their kids tend to vote Labour, and so on. It's been going on for generations. But even although, by and large, you have this process of sort of past dependence, every now and then you have what analysts sometimes call critical junctures. And these are moments of instability in the political system. There are moments when there's a possibility that the political system could go in different ways. And it's interesting here maybe to look straight at Australia, the United States and Sweden. Because the Great Depression comes along. Now, it's a huge economic impact in all of these countries. And in all three of these countries, you have left-wing parties coming to power as the Great Depression hits, or as the Great Depression is underway. And in all three of these countries, left-wing parties coming to power is a kind of break with what had been going on before. Now, these are sort of deviating elections. Now, the economy was going south, People were worried. They thought, we'll give the Labor Party a chance. We don't usually vote Labor, but we'll give them a chance. We'll give the Democrats a chance, even though we usually vote Republican. But what then happened after that is, you know, the crucial question became, well, how did these political parties form in government? And in Australia, the Labor Party failed in government. It wasn't able to handle the Great Depression, the party split disastrously, and two years later it was out of government, completely smashed. Whereas in the United States and Sweden, the left-wing parties were successful in responding to the Depression. 
And voters thought, wow, you know, the depression is getting better, you know, unemployment is going up, the economy is recovering. This is all because of Franklin Roosevelt, this is all because of the Social Democrats. We are going to change our voting behaviour. And you saw a pattern, say, in both America and Sweden, whereby which the kind of left-wing politics then became dominant up until the 1980s. This sort of critical juncture, this sort of turning point in history, human agency mattered, and it meant that the evolution of both those societies was somewhat different. So whereas in Australia, you know, the Labour Party was pretty unsuccessful after 1931, you know, really until the 1980s, in Sweden and America it was the opposite. So that's an example of how what happens in politics, how successful a government is, can bring about processes of political realignment and change the party system. Now, digging a, a bit more deeply into this concept of realignment, um, this is this concept um, that the Regents talk about, um, in particular the Regent by uh, Fitzgerald, um, about what issues are lost. What are the sort of issues that shape politics and how people vote? And the argument here is there are sort of two sorts of issues in politics by and large. Some issues are consensual issues. Health, for example. Everybody wants good health. We all want to be healthier. Health is good. People like health. Uh, people like safety. You know, everybody wants to be able to walk home safely and so on. There are issues that everybody agrees on. And these are called valence issues. So what you find with valence issues is that both political parties agree with them, basically. I mean, they might give more or less emphasis to it. The Labor Party talks about health and education a lot, but the Liberal Party doesn't go along and say, we don't care about health and education. They say, that's good, but look at how fantastic we are in managing the economy or border security or something like that. These are sort of consensual issues. Political parties promise the same other sort of issue, I think, are where people fundamentally disagree about something. And these are known as sort of spatial or positional issues. And I think a good example of that in Australian politics would be asylum seekers. Now, how do you respond to people trying to come to Australia by boat? Do you think they're refugee, you know, they're people escaping persecution, we should welcome them? Or do you think they're a threat to our national security, sovereignty and refuge others? And people polarise about this. So people can disagree about something. And that's a different sort of issue. And if you can put a new issue into politics, you can change how the political system operates. You can encourage the formation of new electoral coalitions, new policies, new identities. You know, part of what you see happening in uh, yeah. part of the story of electoral change, say in Melbourne, 
is about identity changes. Now, if you live in Carlton or Fitzroy, you are probably going to have a particular kind of political and social identity. You're going to have your refugees are welcome sticker on your car. You're going to have free trade coffee or fair, sorry, fair trade coffee and so on. Um, that's going to be part of your identity and your way of life. So that's what these new issues can do. They change the way that people think about politics. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Didn't want to do that. Um, so it's part of a process of identity formation. Now, social movements are about identity formation. So socialist parties emerged in the 19th and early 20th century by being able to encourage people to see themselves as workers and as people who would benefit by the government doing something for them. Now, I'm a poor person. Social welfare is good for me. I'm going to vote socialist because that's what the socialists are for. More recently, say, you know, the rise of your kind of populist right-wingers, well, they encourage people to think of themselves in different ways, to say, well, I'm a Christian. You know, I identify with Christian civilization, even if I don't go to church. I am worried about the number of Muslims in my country. My culture is under threat. I identify with that. So these are sort of spatial issues. People can polarise about them. It changes the political system. And they encourage a more divisive politics. Whereas the kind of violence issues encourage politics pretty much Political parties pretty much promising the same thing. You know, we all believe in better schools and hospitals and blah, 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 and so on. Now, the emergence of valence issues is very much associated with changes in the party system. So I'm now going to show a famous election advertisement from 1972, and which is a classic expression, I think, of valence politics. So, this is from 1972 for the Labour Party. No, 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 go away. No, no, it's not. What happened there? Uh, done something wrong here. No. Okay. Well, I've done something wrong with the printer there. I can't, I can't play that advertisement, um, unfortunately. It's here on my sheet some reason it's not coming out on the screen. But what you see actually the rise of the Labour Party from the 1970s and you know, the emergence of Ross Whitlam very much associated with defining politics as being around issues of government services. So one reason why Whitlam was able to lead the Labour Party back to government in the 1970s and the Labour Party had been out of opposition for well over 20 years was that Whitlam said, well, politics is about health and education. The federal government could do something about health and education. People liked the sound of that and they moved across to the Labor Party. So the Labor Party introduced these new issues into the, into the political system that benefited the Labor Party um, compared to the older issues, say, of national security and defence and anti-communism, which had favoured the political right for long periods. And we can see this also playing out, I think, in the context of the, um, 
collection ships in Australia as an example of the holders of new kinds of issues over people. So this is from 1990 to 2019 when there's sort of systematic um, um, survey evidence of And what you can see actually is that by and large, if you ask people what is the most important non-economic election issue, they tend to say health. And health is a kind of valence issue. Everybody likes the idea of health. Everybody wants good health. It's actually something that's displayed in favour of the Labor Party, the fact that people trust the Labor Party more than this issue. But it's interesting, I think, to look at the fortunes of the environment. Because, you know, when survey evidence, when, 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 sur when a survey was first done in 1990, the environment was actually the most important non-economic election issue that people identified. And it was an issue actually which favoured the Labor Party. So, generally people have tended to prefer the Labor Party on the environment to the coalition, but it's actually fluctuated a lot. There are times when people thought the Labor Party was really good on the environment, and that's important. Other times when they haven't seen much difference between other political parties. So a lot of that has been driven by Labor's different strategies here in terms of how it promotes itself. But you can see you know, the rise and fall of these issues in Australian politics, and parties have both created these issues and also sought to um, accommodate themselves and adjust themselves to it as well. And this is where I think the example of um, the fortunes of the Greens are an interesting example. Because what you see in the 80s, and this really reaches its peak in the early 90s, is that people are concerned about the environment. Now, the 1990 federal election, the environment was the most important Now, you might have said, well, surely this would have to be a good environment for the Greens. Yeah? People are concerned about the environment. People worry about the environment. But if you've got an issue that concerns people, what kind of response are sort of major political parties likely to take towards that issue? If there's a lot of public concern about a particular issue, what do you think major political parties are likely to do? Everybody's concerned about something. What sort of response are major political parties going to try to take? So what you see in Australia is that the Labor Party champions the environment in the 1980s, um, and this is where I will, I'll show this advertisement, which I meant to do. <coughs> this is a Labor Party advertisement from 1980, from 1990.
so so the Labor Party very much campaigned on that issue in 1990. Um, now, and actually, oh, let me just turn it up sound a bit. Um, but the Liberals as well, I mean, the Liberals were playing catch-up, but they're not there. So the Liberals in 1990, um, led by Andrew Peacock, who was just on the other day, the Liberals went to the 1990 election saying, we're really concerned about the greenhouse effect and we're going to do something about it. So both major parties competed on the issue of the environment. And the result of that, paradoxically, is that this actually crowded out the Greens. Because the Labor Party was saying, well, we love the environment, and the Liberals were saying, well, we're sort of fairly keen on it as well. So there wasn't space for the Greens to find a kind of political niche. The environment was not a kind of polarising issue, it was a kind of consensual issue. So, the result is that... The Greens really struggled. Even though the environment was a big issue in politics, people didn't translate that into a vote for Greens. The exception was Tasmania. Whereas in Tasmania, people polarised about the environment. Some people thought, Tasmania is great, it's beautiful, we have to stop the logging and the damming. And other people in Tasmania said, well, that means jobs. Now, Tasmania is a poor state, we need to chop the forests down and make them into paper, we need to dam the rivers to make electric power, to make the factories come here. It was a really divisive issue in Tasmania. So in Tasmania, the environment was a kind of spatial issue. And that created a space for the Greens in Tasmania. The Greens couldn't really make progress on the mainland because more or less everybody sort of agreed the environment was a good thing. You know, Uluru, cute fish, who's against that? In Tasmania, people thought, well, the environment is save the Franklin or it's save my jobs and the Greens we want to destroy it. So that's why the Greens emerge in Tasmania. A kind of spatial issue creates the basis for a new political party to emerge, which the Greens did in Tasmania. It's perhaps no coincidence, maybe, that as the environment has become less controversial in Tasmania, the Greens have actually declined in Tasmania. Now, what happens in 2001 in Australian federal politics um, is that that election is dominated by two things, really. Something big that happened in September 2001. Anybody know what that was? Big world thing happened in 2001. Terrorist attacks on the World Trade Centre, national security defence, people concerned about that, and the counter-crisis, where a people were... Asylum seekers were rescued from a sinking boat, picked up by a Norwegian vessel called... Was it Norwegian? Was it Norwegian or Danish? I can't remember. Yeah. Picked up by a Norwegian vessel, wanted to come to Australia. The Liberal government said, no way, no how. You're not going to land in Australia. And this was a really polarising issue. But most people supported the government, but a lot of people opposed the government and the Labor Party eventually capitulated and fell in behind the government, and a lot of Labor voters were outraged, 
and shift their support to the Greens. And this developed over the next few elections. So if you look at studies at the Greens, you know, the moment really when the Greens were formed as a political party, really, is 2001. You know, the Tasmanian Greens, you know, the Franklin Down lobby, but the moment when the Greens became a national political party is 2001. Generation Camper, that's the force which really enables them to appeal to left-wing voters and actually start pulling left-wing voters away from the Labor Party, not the environment. So you see an example here of how a, an issue laid the basis for a change in the political system, but what it was then crucially dependent on what governments did was when John Howard decided, well, you know, I am going to make asylum seekers a political issue because I think I can win votes. He changed the nature of Australian politics and led to the emergence of the Greens as a political force. So the Greens, really, they had two founders, Bob Brown and John Howard. When John Howard died, the Greens should have a moment of silence because John Howard created the Greens, really, um, by introducing this kind of sort of cultural identity, asylum seekers, border protection issues and so on into Australian politics. Um, so the result is that mostly, however, politics in Australia is pretty consensual. So 2019, uh, Scott Morrison finding his way, Scott Morrison, key elements of his vision for Australia were health and education. Well, which politician doesn't say that? I mean, which politician wants to be against health and education? This is violent politics. Not naming something which is controversial, something very bland. Oh, and the prevention of youth suicide. Well, which politician is going to say they don't want to prevent youth suicide? That's an example of this kind of valence, style of valence politics Scott Morrison displaying there. Now, of course, he won the election in a way by a more polarising issue, you know, saying the Labor Party couldn't do economic management and so on. But that's an example of politicians using this kind of valence rhetoric. So finally, in conclusion, you know, this ties into arguments about the nature of political parties, which is something I'll talk more about in current weeks. The classical literature has really sort of identified sort of three different forms of political parties. Political parties initially emerge as one of those cadre parties. And cadre parties are parties that are very much formed by traditional elites usually by members of parliament, and they manipulate the voters. So they're not parties based in social participation. There are other parties which emerge out of factions within the ruling class trying to, to seek popular support. Cadre parties are challenged by the rise of mass parties in the early 20th century. And what mass parties try to do is to mobilise society and to identify lines of social division. You know, so socialist parties say, you know, we're for the workers. Nationalist parties say, we're for this national group or that national group. 
and they try to develop a mass membership and they try to develop a kind of clear program. You know, the socialists said, well, we want to overthrow the system. Nationalist Party said we want independence and so on. Conservatives, in a way, mirrored them and said, well, we're against socialism. So, so the rise of these mass parties. Now, there are different sorts of mass parties. There are sort of left-wing and right-wing mass parties. I'll talk more about that in, in later weeks. That then gives way in the mid-20th century to the rise of what are known as catch-all parties. So if these parties very much focus on sort of traditional issues, you know, ideas that people love or hate. I mean, you, you either love the idea of socialism or you hate it. Catch-all politics, these parties more promising good things that are generally liked by people. You know, vote Labour. Not for socialism, which is controversial, but vote Labour because you will get better education. That kind of appeal there. An emphasis on leadership and personality. You know, Bob Whitlam was an early example of that. Um, and, you know, Scott Morrison's rhetoric as Prime Minister very much sort of fitted in that kind of general bland format, really. So, this is a, that's sort of been a general introduction to political parties. Um, a lot of theoretical... Oh, this is, this is advertisement. I'll show this now, briefly. This is Phelan's, this is Catch-All Politics in 1972. That's actually a very famous campaign. Um, and it's actually sort of completely vague. And was it time for children? I mean, who's against children, honestly? Time for young folk. Time to teach them. Maybe that's about education. Time for moving. It's time. That's the ultimate violence appeal. You know, after 23 years of Liberal government, that struck a chord with voters. So in a way, 
And of course, the focus on Diplom as leader is really important. This Labor Party had really struggled with unpopular leaders. Whitlam was something new. That's a classic example of valence politics. So what I've sort of talked about today, you know, how we might define a party, their different aspects, and these ideas of realignment, different types of politics, and the different types of political parties which are linked towards them. Um, and next week I'll, you know, look at liberalism and how you know, liberalism with its focus on in independence and autonomy struggles with the idea of a political party as a disciplined force. And both sort of right-wing liberals and sort of left-wing liberals um, have really had to contend with that kind of issue there. Now, that brings us, given that we are 3.30, I'll move across to the discussion questions. Um, so we've got...
limited speakers can be ideal. You know, party activists, true believers, they could also maybe just be selfish forces, like donors and so on. Um, and this is very rational choice style. Well, people always want something, you know, whether they're altruistic or just out for money, everybody wants something. This is that kind of rational choice The growth of MP staff actually gives them more independence and autonomy. You know? Who needs those branch members? You know, when I've got five people, I vote, okay, working for me to do stuff, or I can do my postal mail and so on. I suppose the other issue actually is, um, is of course that you know, these people might want unpopular things.
if you have something which is a valence issue, it's supposed to be sense to be something that You might think health is a kind of archetypal violence issue. Right? Who wants bad health? If you think about COVID, governments become responding to COVID. There's a lot of debate and uncertainty about how to respond to COVID. Uh, is it really that bad? How to respond to it and so on. So Say you have a country, let's say, I don't know, let's say some, uh, some Let's say 2% of people in this country die of COVID. Democrats think the 
when the Democrats are in power, Republicans think the economy is doing poorly. And there might not be any change in the economy, but people see politics through this kind of partisan filter. So that's what Fitz Schultz is, is saying. Now, he's saying that perhaps ultimately this kind of violence division breaks down in practice because people can always disagree about how to interpret what's going on in the world. Yeah? If unemployment goes up 20%, is that the government's fault? Well, you might say no. It's somebody else's fault. Does that argument sort of make sense to people? I mean, I, I really think it explains a lot about COVID, whereas people thought that COVID would have a really big impact, say, on, say, American politics. And it didn't seem that it did much damage to Trump. Whereas people either loved or hated Trump. If you loved Trump, you said COVID wasn't his fault. Now, <coughs> um, yeah, on the other side of politics, I mean, the Victorian government, you know, the, uh, the, con the con contact tracing fiasco, the deaths in nursing homes, People tend to say, well, it's not really the fault of the Andrews government. You know, I stand with Dan, it was an unfair attack, it was all the fault of the Liberals because they had cut public health, it couldn't be anticipated. Look at the Ruby Princess in New South Wales, etc., etc. So, lots of Labour supporters, in a way, like Trump supporters, perhaps were reluctant to admit, well, the government they like had mishandled some things. Um, so, yeah. Maybe that kind of positional versus violence division. I mean, I think it's really useful, but maybe it, it, it ultimately breaks down if you have very partisan politics. Because people see everything through the prism of identity, and it stops being a kind of objective thing, and it becomes a partisan thing. So that's the sort of answer I would have to question three, I think. You know, and I do think the fact that governments can have, some governments have done badly on COVID, doesn't seem to have done much for the advantage. I mean, the political payoff from COVID has really been, when you're in government and people think you've done a good job, you do very well, but you can be in government, handle COVID badly, and not suffer that much political damage. It's sort of been a kind of Australian case. Um, so, yeah. So that sort of concludes um, this week's topic. Um, I know there's still a lot of theoretical concepts, but I think they're useful ones in terms of understanding how the political system works, and in particular how it ties to social movements, because I really want to emphasise that social movements are linked to political parties. Social movements can change society. Politicians then respond to social movements. So social movements are very important in terms of shaping political parties. But once you sort of have a kind of political structure established, it's very durable and hard to challenge. And the legacy of social movements can last a long time. You know, it's been a long time maybe since the labour movement in Australia was a social movement, but it's set up a political party and past attendance that's endured since then. Okay, well, thank you for your attendance this week. If people could just finish off their question sheets and pass them up, and I promise I will have next, uh, all back next week, unless the cat has done something